Begin Podfix Network transmission. In three, two, whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, a show about fish, fishing, and eating fish. I'm Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerd, Licensed Fishing Guide, your best friend, and with me today is the Crappy Hippie. Hey, Crappy Hippie. Hey, Clay, it's John King, the crappie hippie here, your tree-hugging redneck from eastern Kansas and co-founder of Glasswater Angling Lead-Free Fishing here in the studio with Clay this morning. Yeah, it's early. You're you're like at 5 o'clock in the morning saying, hey, Clay, let's make a podcast. And I'm like, but I haven't had my coffee yet. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Picking on you before you even get your coffee. I'm telling you, man feeling though i'm I'm anxious i gotta get this going man but we're late we're running late with the pod this week we are but that's because it's national podcast posting month and you've been traveling so let's talk about national let's first talk about national podcast posting month for people who haven't caught on already because it's been pretty (laughs) pretty widely done but every day this month we're putting out a podcast so today's podcast is the full episode you're hearing that now but tomorrow will be a short three to four minute episode of someone's fishing pet peeve could be yours if you call in the Fish Nerds hotline, 607-378-FISH. And then we put it on there. That's it. Easy. And you can win prizes. You can win prizes. We are going to give away at least one $50 prize pack to somebody. And then I went on to say if we get more than 10, we'll do a couple of them. And we get more than 25, we'll do a $100 prize pack plus two $50 prize packs. So your odds of winning are fantastic. Yes. Get and one you get in. And you can send more than one in if you got more than one fishy pet peeve. So. Oh, my gosh, yes. I tell you, send them in, send them in, send them in. I mean, we will take them all, and we will broadcast them all. Yep, which is great. And because the less you hear of me or John this month, the better. <laughs> <laughs> so, And we've been doing pretty good so far. So far, I've only had to make one. And then the rest yeah. have been all listeners, which is great. And I haven't heard you at all, John, which is wonderful. Well, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Although I did send a couple in, but yeah, you've got them. You you don't need them quite yet, so that's yet. fantastic. And if you don't need them at all, that's fine. Well, I know where I can just save them for something else, or just I like I'm with you. I'd rather hear from the listeners. So yeah, great. yeah fantastic. Great. And other ways to do it besides calling the Fish Nerds hotline is grabbing your phone. This is probably the best way to do it, and open the memo function on your phone, the voice memo and record it there nice and clean and email it to clay at fishnerds.com and it comes out nice and good that way. You sound best. Yeah, or you can email it to crappiehippie at glasswaterangling.com. Either yeah. one. Don't leave John out. He gets sad. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I just, you know, just in case you can't remember one, you can maybe remember the other one, but you can get it to us. You can always find us for easy. Instagram or Facebook. We're, we're around. You can we're, get it to us. We're easy to get. All right, John, give us today's rundown of the show what's happening well we're going to do a little news and then Mm. we are going to talk to the oklahoma pond lady amy robeson on drawdown because we had a drought this summer in kansas so my pond drew way down and um, so i thought i'm going to talk to amy about the effects and benefits and and uh, uh, whatever the opposite of of benefit (laughs) well it's interesting do you remember Fishing with me on Conway Lake. I do remember that. Yes. So yes. They, they drew that lake down 25 feet this year. The Did whole they? lake. 
to rebuild the whole launch. It looks like a river. I bet. Yeah. I want to go canoe out and pick lures on the rocks. Yes. That's, yes. If you know, we didn't talk day. about that. <laughs> that that's, a, that's a good one. That's a yeah. good one to do when there's drawdown on a big lake. Mm-hmm. So we'll but, get into that in a little bit. Let's hold that story. <laughs> we will. We will. You're going to have to tell me more about that. But I, I'll tell you a little story real quick. Is that we, then we finally got rain. We got six to eight inches of rain. Uh, the pond came back up. And the, um, so the other day, it was getting ready to rain a little more. And this was going to be a cold, cold rain. But just to, just to prove I'm crazy, just to prove you can go out and catch fish in this, because, of course, you can. I took my spinning gear down there. And I was looking at all the plants that have been flooded along the shore. Mm-hmm. And even in this, I mean, this rain was like sleet, but, you know, sleet is either hard or sometimes it's soft and it just sticks together. So these giant blobs of slush are just falling out of the sky. This kind of a thing. Well, that hadn't hit me quite yet, but uh, I was noticing every now and then I was having a kind of a challenging time. I was still catching fish, but I didn't think to bring a fly rod. And I needed a, a hopper dropper because I kept seeing fish surface. There were little spiders and little bugs and little this and little that. The w- wind was kicking out of that flooded grass. And I'll be darned if those bluegill were not swimming around here and there, picking those things off the surface. Now, that just drove me nuts. And anyway, I just had to talk to Amy. So we got the Oklahoma Pond lady coming up on Pond Drawdown. And uh, then we're going to do a, a thing on fall inshore fishing with todd correa he loves to talk about his striped bass and he has these striped bass called holdover striped bass that hang around all winter and give him something to fish at and uh then we are going to finish up with an old piece we used to do on lure love called klur lure history radio and uh that we decided to do because tim beat you remember tim beat don't you yep love tim beat. <laughs> anyway he made another great pick he had to tell me all about it uh yeah 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 I'm, I'm glad he is too submitting some stuff and you know what i will put in the show notes because his episode on picking lures was our most popular lure love episode. it was a good one it was solid because he's really good at it yep yeah yeah very solid and i'll make sure and, and put that in there um but anyway you got a, a diamond gym bait company articulated swimming minnow uh that's worth like 10 to 15 bucks all these were in box clay i mean he really made a deal here he's, he's good it's at that bad. Him, him and kathy they, they like to hang out but he got a, uh, another company called Mueller Perry Fish Lure Company. They made a lure called the Crazy Legs, and he's a good name. worth about thirty to thirty-five. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then his his big find was a number forty Adam Swimmer in box. The box alone is worth like thirty bucks. So the total take on that one's going to be somewhere forty-five to seventy dollars. So good good investment for his uh, thirty bucks. And we also get a KLUR on Adam Lures out of it. So Can't thank you, Tim, for sending that in. And that'll be our final piece tonight. All right. Well, why don't we get right into the action with some fish in the news? You ready? I love fish in the news. Everyone loves fish in the news. News, news, fish in the news. Everybody loves their fish in the news. All right. Here we go. You ready, John? I am so ready. Did you put this first story up or did I do? You put it up, but it's I don't familiar. remember. <laughs> it's like, it seems familiar because it seems like something that happened to either one of us. For right. Sure. Well, the, the headline, John, I, I put these notes together like three weeks ago and forgot about them. So the headline is angler reels in fish for a second time, a second time after it flops out of his hands into a storm drain. That's really great. That's a good, that's a solid headline. That's all I've pre-read. 
I just read that and thought, that's news. So this happened in Valley City, North Dakota. And in Valley City, North Dakota, the phrase, that one, the one that got away briefly came to life for one fisherman. It happened when he caught a walleye and it flopped out of his hands and down a storm drain while he was posing for a picture with his cash. It's great. So he wasn't fishing in the, stor- was in the storm drain, I don't think. Uh, unwilling to give it up, Sean Grimm used his rod and reel and lure with treble hooks to fish the walleye out of the drain. So he was taking a photo, dropped it down the drain. <laughs> so the drain was, was there and then he fished it out. Um, the Valley City Police Department traffic cameras caught the whole thing on camera, which is why it's news. It was a 22-inch long fish. It's pretty amazing. Now, I mean, it's 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 a beautiful walleye. Is that, is Sean Grimm just looks like an ordinary dude. Mm-hmm. It's, it cracks me up. Uh, I'm so glad they caught this on camera because, like I say, this is like something you know, one of these dumb things that you're just like, why did this happen to me? Um, you know, good walleye fishing up there in North Dakota. That's it one is. thing. You know, though, John, the problem is I always start thinking about loss, fishing loss, and like. Like moving live fish around in my state's illegal. You couldn't take a walleye out to the street corner from the lake you caught it on and take a photo of it. That'd be moving a live fish. And that's illegal oh. in the state of New Hampshire. And a lot of states have that law, so you don't move invasives around. Right, so, right, okay. I'm, I'm going to be a negative Nancy here. <laughs> well, you know. So, wait, I, <laughs> he didn't, he didn't if, you know, if he caught it in that storm drain and was taking his. His hero shot there and then dropped it, caught it again. No laws broken. I don't know laws in his state. But uh, in New Hampshire, that would be illegal to catch it in your secret pond, travel with it, and then lose it somewhere else. So, and then the other thing well, is... Oh, no, you were going to say the other thing. I'm just laughing. I'm sitting there watching the video. It's, it's, Y'all got to look at this because the video is hilarious. I mean, it just, it's something you'll be able to identify with. And then, sure. of course, he wasn't going to let that nice 22-inch walleye. That was going to go on his dinner. And uh, so he, he pulls out a big rapala and goes fishing for it again down in the storm drain. Um, Got to admire that walleye for all its gumption trying to get away. And you kind of feel sorry for it. But on the other hand, um, Sean, he, he you know, he, he's a good angler. He's a good guy. He's just going to catch it, take it home and eat it. And right, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> go to waste and and then let it go down there and let the rats have it. So he yeah. he knocked himself out right there in front of Pizza Corner until he got that thing back. Yeah. <laughs> now, here's a question for you. Okay. Ethical question. Now, that, we don't know where that storm drain drains to. It probably drains to a water treatment facility. So that fish would have been gone or anyway, even if it got away there. And but, so he had to get it back out of the hole. He, is, is snagging a fish and fishing the same thing? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, if right. it's legal, it's fishing. If it's not legal, it's poaching. And, uh, but snagging is an, Tried and true method for certain fish in certain and states. In certain states, yeah. Yeah, in New Hampshire, you can't snag anything. Well, you can snag paddlefish in Kansas. That was the only way to catch them, right? That was the only way to catch them. And actually, yeah. then of course we've had um, uh, we've had guests on that have pointed out in Kansas that you know uh, we kind of wish this wasn't the case. Some of us mm-hmm. do anyway. But yeah, your buffalo, your some of your gar, some of your what are called non-game species are also allowed to be snagged. Uh, taken by any method, which is, um, well, anyway, we all know I'm not for that. Uh, I'd love to see them elevated to a more protected status, but that's not what we're doing right here. What are you going to say? Are you saying Sean should have got a ticket because he snagged his walleye out of the sewer? I'm just being a <laughs> I'm just, it, look, here's the thing. Like, I, I would have done the same thing. 
<laughs> so there's, there's no other thing. There's no other reaction you can do but to try to get your fish back. So oh, yeah. I, I think he did the right thing. I'm just, I like to kind of play that kind of, well, you know, is it this? Is it that? Just kind of to make the conversation. So, <laughs> well, they have all the evidence. They have anything guys confessed. So mm-hmm. if someone's going to get after him there. Well, they, they he, did it, he, now. he did it in front of the police camera. So he's not going to jail. So I know it. <laughs> All right, let's move on from oh that. And anyway, he did the same story. thing we all would do. Yeah. Let's move on from this one. All right. I will, yeah, we're spinning sexy, out of control, but John. that's okay because... You're going to get sexy time. Some morning sexy time for it's us. It's sexy time. Morning sex. Let's do it. It's up to you and me, You know, John, anytime I could play that music from the bait caster cylinder, I'm happy to play it. I love that song. <laughs> I know it. I know it. it, it bait caster cylinder is awesome. I love both our themes, and I hope they send in some more soon. I hope so. All right. Well, let's talk about dating apps. John, you're a big online dater, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, my need for online dating uh, uh, never materialized. Uh, I got my mind made up before it came along, and I'm pretty pretty set there, brother. Yeah, and I don't online date either because, you know, I don't date because I'm married. But let's talk about online dating because who better to talk about dating online than a couple of old fishers? Hey, <laughs> you know what? Uh, yeah, who better? Right. Well, this is good news. Uh, so, but you do you are, you're aware of online dating? It's a thing. People. Well, do of course it, I am. I have, you know yeah. I have a daughter. Yeah. So, um, I, and I've I've heard different things. What do you think about people posing with fish pics for their dating app picture? Like the best picture you can take of someone is them with a grouper. I I think you ought to do it if you like the fish. Let them know in advance that mm-hmm. uh, you're into it because if if they're not, they need to they need to scroll on <laughs> because. <laughs> You can't make somebody quit fishing. That's all there is to it. Right. And it turns out, so there's been, there's been some research done on this to find out if women find men attractive while holding fish picks. Because I've heard both things. I've heard women say, no, don't do it. And others say, yeah, I don't care. Go ahead. Go for it. And it looks like in Florida, this is where the study was done, and <laughs> a lot of fish in Florida, uh, it turns out 22% of young Florida men between the ages of 18 and 35 on their Tinder apps, have a picture of them holding a fish. So then they did some research. They took a thousand members of a sorority. <laughs> These guys are working hard. We need a thousand 22 year old women to come together and talk about fish. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. We'll, we'll ply you with alcohol and you can tell us if we're attractive. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> so they grabbed a thousand sorority members to see if men not only were more attractive holding a fish in their picture, but which fish made them appear more attractive. So we're going to break this down a little bit, John, to find out, first of all, to the men, are they attractive holding the fish? And then if you're dating online, which fish should you be holding? And before I do it, John, no, I'm going to, I'm going to before I do this, I want to ask you, let's pretend you're a 22-year-old dude, you're young, handsome, got great hair, John King, not quite the hippie yet. <laughs> right, you got an online app. You're single. 
ready to go. And you've got a choice of 30,000 fish and you have one to pick that girls are going to find attractive. Which fish do you pick? So I, I don't have to be a Florida guy. Doesn't matter where you like live. in this study. You can Doesn't pick whatever fish you want. But if you want to go to Florida, we can narrow it down. No, no, no. I, I, in fact, I, I'm wondering, um, this is such a fun article, and uh, wondering what people would do in other parts of the country and what they'd be holding. So I'll put the same question back to you. But for me, boy, I'm trying to, you know, do I hold a crappie? That would be the truth. And that, that's that's pretty fish. Yeah. Or do I get something super cute, like a long ear sunfish or a super cute, you know, bluegill or something like that? Do I go cute or do I just, you know, try to impress with a big old flathead? You know, I just, God, I think I'm going to have to go with crappie. I would go, I with, crappie. go with crappie. That's smart. I would go with a puffer fish. <laughs> that's brilliant. All the way cute. I mean, there's nothing cuter, right? Yes. But I wouldn't have a picture oh, of it oh, with yes. a hook in its mouth. I'd be like holding it like I'm making kissy faces at it. You're like, look how cute. Oh, yes. look, he's snuggling a puffer fish. Look how cute. It's like having a kitten. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. So, he's snuggling a puffer fish. He's snuggling a puffer fish. I'd love to see a nationwide study on this same thing. And I'd definitely find out regionally what fish are more attractive as well. So maybe we Indeed. can do some, do some fish nerds work on the back end here. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about the results in Florida. Again, this was a thousand sorority girls, or excuse me, women, thought of men holding fish. Uh, what do you think, John? You think the vast majority liked the fish, didn't like the fish? Um, I think the vast majority. No, I think I think probably the majority mm. like fish, fishers. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, let's talk about it. Uh, it looks like. Almost half, so 46% of these of the women were more attracted to photos of men who were holding a fish. And the women who found men more attractive then moved on to another study. So they took that group of, so that 46% of women, so it was 1,000 women, now we're talking about 460, 460 women, <laughs> moved on to the next part of the study. So now of those women who like men with fish, now the question is, which fish made the men more attractive? And I like how they're kind of narrowing this down. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. We need all the help we can get. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> so on their website, so they, they asked the question here to find if there was a fish that made the men appear more attractive than others. And I'm going to give you the results for the top 10 fish, all right? This is for those who indicated they consider men with fish to be attractive. And let's go with the least attractive, right? What okay. do you think? <laughs> what do you think the least attractive fish is going to be in Florida? Uh, well, well, let's see. I'm trying, well, I was going to say walking catfish, one of these ugly invasives. And, and by the way, this is not limited to fresh or salt water, so it doesn't narrow it down that much. No, no. I, I mean, I don't know. I'd, at least attractive? Mm -hmm. Gosh, I'd, I would probably say something like a, a grouper or a grunt or a, a snapper, just something kind of run of the mill, maybe? Nope, carp. Carp. No. <laughs> yep. Less than one percent of women found men holding a carp attractive. I, I can I can understand that. Uh, number nine on the list: three percent of women. That's it. Of these four hundred and sixty women, only three percent thought barracudas met, made men look good. And number okay. eight, number eight at five percent. One of my favorite Florida fish that I've never seen in real life that I dream of seeing one day was a hogfish. They are a fascinating fish. Yeah, actually. Wild looking fish, and they are. And so only 5% of fish, because that means they're looking at that and going, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a quote in the study. It goes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, American Red Snapper coming in number seven at eight percent. Amberjack at eight percent as well, so tying there. So six and seven are tied. King mackerel, another fun Florida fish, nine percent. At number four, John, red grouper at twelve percent. Well, wow! So my grouper and my snapper did a lot better than I thought they would. They did better than you thought. Um, number three, and this is actually a really pretty fish, the African pompano, pompano. Pompano is the way I've already said it, but the, the gorgeous fish, yeah. Beautiful. Uh, and number two, you can almost predict this. This is going to be, oh, this is a big Florida wall hanger. Beautiful fish. What do you think it is? Ocean fish. Oh, I'm huge, uh, dangerous. I'm, yeah, it's got to be a billfish of some sort. I'm gonna yeah, you're in the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking sailfish. It is definitely a sailfish at 18%, Sean. Whoa. 18%. And the number one most attractive Florida fish in your profile picture, according to these 460 sorority girls, which is a lot of sorority girls. And I'll admit, I've never been around that many of them. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm a little afraid of them. <laughs> 21% of people uh, say men holding the great northern tilefish are the most attractive. Well, that's actually, I think this is fantastic because they've, these, these young ladies have picked out some really cool fish. I, mean, I think so. I mean, you would, you know, you would think barracuda and this and that and, you know, the king mackerel and things. Sure. But really geeky, pretty, interesting fish like hogfish mm -hmm. and great northern tilefish for the win. I mean, mm -hmm. come on, man. These are some pretty cool girls. They are. They are women. Cool. Excuse me. Yes. Yeah. We assume they're cool because they like guys who are holding fish, right? They like guys that are holding fish and they like guys that are holding nerdy fish. Right. And those 54% of women who didn't like men holding fish can go pound sand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll see what that gets you. I don't matter what it gets me. <laughs> I'm an old man. It doesn't make any difference to me whatsoever. <laughs> so. Well, I'm just saying, I'm putting it in that the fishers are, are just tend to be a more of a quality Sure. I, I'm going. Well, to, I'm just going to say it. Yeah. Well, I, I say there was variables anybody else, but John, I'm also going to say like that study, scientifically speaking, playful. You know, there's, there's a lot of variables and attractiveness besides the fish. So oh, absolutely. But, I, but, it's, but it's still a lot of fun. I'd love to see a, a, a regional study done and just kind of really narrow that down to make sure that your bluegill is hot. Yes, exactly. I mean, <laughs> I, this is, of course, this is a thing. This is why, I, you know, both envy and and admire, but also just kind of fear for Doc Martin, because to be into research, everything, you, you research one thing and it just brings out, just causes. Well, you, you know, Doc Martin. things to pop up that you want to look into. Yeah, you know, Doc Martin, listening to this interview and listening to this story is vomiting all over her class <laughs> <Yeah>. right now <laughs> because it's, 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 it's absolutely garbage science. Yeah. And uh, so I'll acknowledge that. But then I would pose to Doc Martin, which fish do you think is the most attractive for a guy to hold? So that's your future question, Doc Martin. Oh, Answer I think I one. know. Well, don't don't guess for her, but let her. Okay, I, I don't, you don't want it because you'll buy. You'll do some implicit bias. That's true. You say what you're thinking right now. Okay, so I won't. I don't say it. Don't oh, say right. it. All right, moving on. You got a story, John? I do have a story. Guess what? What? Groupers are out there having protected sex. Well, that's really good news, John, because didn't we just find out that 12% of sorority girls find groupers attractive? Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh... <laughs> 
Groupers are, are safe and uh, perfectly all right to find attractive. Um, but of course, this is this is off uh, Science Daily, which likes to bring you in with these crazy titles. And they got me protected sex, grouper mating calls in marine managed areas. And this is a uh, study done by Florida Atlantic University. And what we're finding out, well, we know this. We've talked about this on the show a time or two about the sounds fish make. Groupers produce distinct sounds associated with courtship, territoriality, or reproduction. An autonomous mobile wave glider and passive acoustics were deployed to survey three marine protected areas on the western shelf of Puerto Rico. And what they're out to do in this area is locate the spawning aggregations of two commercially important species of grouper, the Nassau grouper and the red hind grouper. And the reason they want to do this, they're studying where these fish go, where they gather, because they are very vulnerable when they're spawning. They gather on these big shoals, these big underwater shelves, and the, they're very concentrated. Um, it's a short period of time, but um, they've actually have, have set these areas aside so people don't fish in them either on purpose or by accident. Um, and, so their uh, their protected sex is in a protected area. Yes, the protected sex <laughs> angle is that they they are being protected by it's human a great beings. Great headline. <laughs> why they have the sex? Yes. So we've got these protected sex areas, spawning areas. Right. Um, yeah, I have one of those, by the way. <laughs> no, really. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, it's a it's a little tiny button on my doorknob. You turn to the right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, okay, stop, just stop, okay? Just stop. I was going to ask you, John, what is your, like, if groupers have a mating call, what is your mating call? Oh, uh, please, come on, please. <laughs> Would you like a glass of wine? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's more just, you know, like, have mercy. Yeah. Um, something like that. I mean, if it, it, yeah. We've already uh, said too much, John. I have said way too much. You really put me on the spot, you know. You don't have my, to answer every question you're asked. We don't. That's a, that's a secret in life. Okay. Not, no law requiring you to answer every question you're asked. <laughs> well, that's how you get in trouble, John. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Well, let's get back to these here groupers. All right. The a call of the wild inspired researchers from Florida Atlantic University, Arbor Branch Oceanographic Oceanographic Institute to follow and record grouper mating sounds in these managed areas off Puerto Rico. Um, so they. This. They had this thing called wave glider, which had one way to record the acoustics, and it's moving around. So it's, I guess it's kind of like an underwater drone. And then they had different detectors set, you know, fixed detectors. And as the glider moves in this pattern, they can kind of figure out where the fish are um, by uh, triangulating between where the glider's picking up um, sound and the, the fixed ones are picking up sound. So they not only can tell where the fish are, but they can kind of tell how many are there, uh, you know, the spatial distribution and so forth. Um, well, John, let's help you yeah. a little bit. So I'm going to, this is future Clay going to do this. So right here, I'm going to drop in the sounds of grouper spawning. So people will know the sounds they're making with the remaining calls. So I'm going to, edit right. this in. I'm going to drop it in right now. That's what grouper sounds like. Wow. 
yeah, they, they sound like they're they sound like they're doing all right. That they're doing a great job company. pretending you heard that, John. I, I am. <laughs> I'm doing a great job, and I, and I am. I actually um, feel like I, I I know what what. Sorry about that. Yeah, I'm doing a great job. You know, I'm really good at pretending. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good. <laughs> Let's keep going. <laughs> anyway, Laurent Sherubin, PhD, senior author and research professor at FAU Harbor Branch, uh, said that uh, there's lots of species of grouper, and most of them have distinctive calls. They're distinctive in duration, peak frequency, and tonal characteristics. Uh, and so they're easy to distinguish just by listening or visually when you put it over a spectrogram. Anyway, Shruvan said that um, what we're doing here is a cost-effective method uh, for us researchers to monitor the fishing, uh, the fish spawning aggregations, the density. Also, they're finding that they tend to move from one place to another, and they're curious to see if if global warming and so forth is affecting where they're spawning or if they spawn and then move to a holding area. In other words, they're looking to see if they need to protect more areas. And so they want to, <laughs> um, they want to find more protected sex areas for the grouper. And I, I, you know, without the babies, we don't have any grouper. Anyway, I thought it was a really cool study. I love the equipment they use to create a spatio-temporal distribution of these two species in a spawning aggregate. So I love it. I love it. Well, I think it's great. And the headline alone is worth having. So that gets us out of our sexy fish in the news. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play that sex music one more time because I just love it so much. Here we go. Oh, yeah, John. Mm. Oh, yeah. Gets me in the mood to talk talk more about fish. Okay, good. I was going to say, don't you go waking people up now. No, no. Not nice. No, we're actually going to be talking to um, Amy Robeson right now, the Oklahoma Pond Lady. We are going to talk to the Oklahoma Pond Lady because, like I say, my pond was way down. And, Clay, do you know, like, have you experienced with this that when a lake draws down, either on purpose or by drought, it comes back up. You ever notice how good that makes the fishing? Well, yeah, because the fish get to spread out. And, of course, all those land invertebrates end up in the water. So there's all this food they haven't had before, they haven't had access to in a long time. So, yeah, they're eating to get their feed bag on. Well, we're going to talk to Amy about that phenomenon. We're going to talk about uh, the dangers of drawdown, the benefits of drawdown, and all that good stuff with Amy Robeson, the Oklahoma Pond Lady, right now. Doing? I'm doing very well, sir. How are you? I'm doing great, you know, because we got almost uh, somewhere between like six to eight inches of rain. So my it, pond yeah. went, went from being as low as I've ever seen it to clear up actually a little bit uh, flooded now that, that we got enough rain. Because before, whatever rain we got was going straight in. No no runoff. Now we got some All runoff. Right. So I went down right after the rain. It was completely just right at full. And then Yesterday, or yeah, it was yesterday I went down, and it actually was up over the banks of ways. So it was really good to see my pond back in action. But what that whole yeah. event, that whole drought event, what we call a drawdown event, made me think of you as always when I'm 
stressing over my pond or when I'm admiring my pond. And uh, I thought we could talk about drawdown. Drawdown, it's water loss in a pond or a lake or a stream by evaporation, like during a drought, what happened to my pond. But in man-made events or man-made events, excuse me, in man-made impoundments, or actually some natural impoundments have controlled outflow as well, a drawdown can be achieved by simply opening the gate and letting water out till it's drawn down two, three, five feet, whatever they need to do. So drawdown has different sorts of effects on a body of water. And uh, let's talk a little bit about the pros and cons of drawdown. Okay. Yeah, it's definitely something that used to be pretty prevalent in the landscape of pond management, it seems. And I think it has a regional sort of flair to it, depending on a lot of different factors. But yes, I think we'll go through some of these different pros and cons with uh, either one, it being natural and, and, and it's it, how it happens, or if it's something that's purposeful. Right, because purposeful, you control the time of year, and I notice that generally you want to do it sometime in the fall, either early fall, if you intend to plant some things in the, in the resulting dry land that forms after you draw down. Sometimes we want to plant in there. Or another reason is for making repairs to the dam or making repairs to the to the outflow or, or something like that. And you want to bring that up into a high and dry situation so you can work on it. And they generally pick fall to do that because, tell me if I'm right or wrong, but fall is a safer time to do it. Because when we have less volume of water, we have less oxygen, we have less room for the fish. So... In fall, when they're kind of taking it easy, not their oxygen demand, the heat's not as bad, their oxygen demand isn't so great, that's a good time to do it, correct? Well, yeah, that's one of the main uh, driving factors behind the time of year for a purposeful drawdown event, because anytime you lower water level, you're not eliminating the nutrient load that's in the pond, and so you're essentially concentrating that nutrient-rich matter into a smaller volume of water that has less capacity to cycle those nutrients. So if you were to do that, say, in the summertime, when your biological oxygen demand is very high, then you could potentially overload the oxygen demand. Even with aeration, you can still overload that oxygen demand and potentially cause a fish kill. So when it starts getting cooler, you know, your your demand is lower and the water itself is already going to hold more oxygen because it's cooling off. So it's it, it is an overall safer time of year to perform that type of a an event or manipulation to your pond for sure. Well, I noticed that mine of course was a natural drawdown due to drought and as the water got lower and lower the fishing became tougher because the fish tend to be less active. They tend to stay deeper. It just, they would have just seemed a little more, um, I mean, they were still catchable, plenty catchable, but uh, they, they were a little tougher. You had to get that line way the heck on out toward the middle. They were really concentrated in just a, a few areas rather than right. cruising here, cruising there. Right. And I think that has a lot to do with, well, a couple of different factors, but generally you have, more of your structure available in those shallower areas and when you eliminate that by lowering the water level below what spots those fish generally like to hang out then they're a little bit displaced you know and and 
of course, a fish can determine the loss of water as well. So if there is a significant loss to a system, uh, it, you know, fish aren't stupid. They can perceive, hey, my little hidey hole, my spot I like to hang out is gone. That means maybe we're losing water. I need to get down to deeper areas so I don't dry up. So maybe I'm anthropomorphizing some, but... You know, I think uh, it definitely indicates their level of perception of their environment for well, a couple of different reasons. But yeah, I, I noticed that like 90 percent of my shoreline brush was first in ridiculously low water and then a lot of it, you know, up high and dry. And all the willow trees I dropped, two thirds of them were out, you know, just the very tops were laying in the water. So what was a floating tree with three, two, three feet of water underneath it now was a tree laying in the mud with just a few inches of water under it. But one reason I know that the purposeful drawdown too is better in the fall is because those pesky turtles, which I love my turtles, even the snappers, I don't throw in shade mm -hmm. on the turtles there. They belong there as much or more than me, but boy, they have fields there in the summer when the pond's drawn down because they know right where to go and, they, yeah. and they've got the food concentrated. So it's nice in the fall when they start, although I, I still see one here and there, when they start digging they do in, slow down. Yeah, slow yeah. them down, get them under the mud, get them out of the way. And you wrote in the notes also, if if uh, you draw down to where you don't have much uh, cover for the fish, the herons, because the water tends to get more clear, and yep. you, you draw way down, and bird that, you know, on those long legs, he can go right out, right out where they're at, and yeah. they don't have near as many options to get away from old heron now. That's right. Well, and I mean, if you're concentrating nutrients, you're concentrating your fish into a smaller area. And as a general rule, when people ask how much potential threat turtles impose on a fish population, the truth is that for the most part, turtles are generally not fast enough to chase down a big bluegill or a bass. You know, they're really your cleanup crew. However, when you do have more of a problem with turtles becoming these predatory animals on larger fish is when they are pulled up, when their volume, the fishes are in a lower volume of water, they have nowhere to go. And so that is when, you know, that with less cover and less space, those turtles have a greater ability to chase fish down that they may not be able to if they're in a, a, a bigger volume of water. So... Yeah, it's the I same mean, thing. It is the same thing. And and it's funny, too, because when you go out and fish, the turtles are just a real pain. you got to put your fish, you're keeping fish, you got to put them in a bucket because whether you're on shore or in a boat, when the water's down like that, they're really on the hunt. I mean, when you have a large yeah. volume of water in my pond, you can dangle your stringer over the side and you're fine. Generally, you're fine. But, boy, when it gets, starts to get low... That does not work at all. And any low no. pond that I've ever fished, they will zero in on that stringer and start robbing you, The, I mean, within two minutes of it going in the water. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've had net sets where uh, you've got fish that are already chopped in half before you can <laughs> even get the nets out of the water. For the most part, turtles just really aren't going to be a big problem unless you do have something that causes significant volume loss so 
you know, at, 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 for the most part, we do get a lot of people that complain about the turtles, but the overall impact that they have is relatively limited when a system is full to capacity. All right. Also, let's see. Let's go through. So we went through the cons about the fishing getting tougher and making the fish more vulnerable to predators. You made the point that in many places, what makes drawdown dangerous, especially in Oklahoma and Kansas, is you can't predict the weather around here. You can't even begin to try to predict the weather. You can't predict it within five minutes a lot of the time. And so your right. refill, you may have big plans, like when the core mm-hmm. drew down, they drew down the reservoir over here, Hillsdale, and then they turned around, they didn't get any rain in March, April, to fill it May, back up. June. Right. Back up. So whether it's your pond or a big reservoir, what have you, got to be careful, got to keep those fingers crossed and know that whether you do it on purpose or whether nature's doing it to you, that refill is no guarantee. And when it'll come is very uncertain, correct? Right. And that's why the purposeful drawdown during fall and winter months is much more common in areas that have a greater ability to predict those spring rains. But at this point with climate change, I don't think any of us need to take that kind of uh, cycle for granted because it can change, it can shift, it can definitely even uh, delay the filling long enough to where you exacerbate some of those issues from having less volume. And uh, we don't have any way of knowing how long some of these cycles are really going to last. I mean, you went from having your pond be the lowest you've ever seen it and then filling up. And in the fall is not generally when we quote unquote expect those big rains i mean obviously in this part of the country we do have some fall rains but if you're dependent on those spring rains and you just have no way of knowing if they're ever going to reach your pond or even more important reach your pond when you want them to then that can be a very dangerous game to play it's a total yeah yeah and i mean you're you're talking about a pond that you've been around for a pretty significant period of time and having never seen it this low is a red flag to me that you're not the only one that's experiencing this. So if you don't have something catastrophic going on or repairs that need to be made, then it might not be a good idea just to draw it down as a management tactic. Okay, Amy, we only have about five minutes. So as usual, we've gotten to wandering around and going deep and geeking out like we, we always tell ourselves we're not going to do but we end up doing it anyway but that's all right okay so some of the pros real quick to a drawdown that once we talked about making repairs to the dam or making repairs to things that need to be repaired along the shore um this one is that you said you wrote in the notes uh it can actually improve your forage situation in the fall and winter because once the the system is slowed down you concentrate the fish it makes it so that they grow more over the winter because they have an easier time finding the prey, which I found to be quite interesting. This would be more applicable if you're choosing to draw down maybe at the very beginning of fall uh, when fish are still a lot more active. Okay. If you're concentrating their food source, then you give them that extra boost while they're still active and hopefully put some good resources right in front of their face so that they go into the winter in better shape than they might have been otherwise. 
I don't know that that's a great reason to do that necessarily, but more of a side uh, benefit, is, maybe more of a side right. benefit. Yeah. That's definitely one of the, the methods of thinking about this and why it would potentially be posed as a management tactic. Well, it is all about management tactics and, and we've talked about the risk, but low water period, like if you have one from a drought and you can't help it, you might as well do something. It's an excellent time to drag in a bunch more brush. You got all that. Right. You just, you don't have to get on the waders. You don't have to put on the hip boots or even the knee boots. You can drag a whole lot of brush out, you know, five, six feet from the bank. And then when the water comes up, it's in the perfect spot for the fish spawn, to, the little bait balls and stuff to run right into after they get off the nest and hide and grow. Absolutely. And, uh, of course, if you do have on your chesties, wait on out there and put some deep brush in because now what was yeah. six, seven feet now is only four feet. So you can get out and put in some more brush, uh, other structures, your conch, uh, your cinder blocks, your things like that. For And you can tie your little buoy on there or set your markers so you know where it is when the water comes back up. I read a great article where they talked about drawdown being used to eliminate certain types of vegetation. For example, if you've got the one of my favorites, but it is an invasive and it can get to be a problem, especially down south, that pretty little yellow water hyacinths. But even in Arkansas, I guess it gets cold enough. If you've got a drawdown event then going on, the elimination of some of that hyacinths and certain other water plants will be, once again, a kind of a side bonus. Maybe you're fixing the dam, but you also potentially improve your uh, shoreline growth. Right. Well, and, and something that I didn't put in the notes but ties into this is if you have bank issues, this would also be a good time to work on some of the erosion control or bank stabilization projects that, you know, it, it can be very cumbersome to try to work on your shoreline, your, your banks, especially if you have bank collapse going on. Doing that type of repair work while it's full can be a lot more oh. tricky but dangerous also yeah so. yeah it's no no it, it's so great when you can drive your machine you can drive your scoop you know right along the shoreline and and put the rocks in or put whatever you need in or, right. or do your digging or something where you're not in mud and you're not you know because you're the flip side of dealing with mud is you're going to compact things and mm -hmm. you're going to make it harder for plants to use that area um, not only is it hard to use machinery and so forth, but uh, yeah, so it's great for all kinds of improvements. Let's just put it that way. There. Right. Another thing you can do is is your aquatic and riparian grass. They have a big thing uh, down at one of the, I think it's Cheney here in Kansas down south where they have it drawn down. And so they're out there putting in an aquatic grass that can grow mm -hmm. right either, you know, in a few inches of water up to the repairing Maybe a sedge or a rush of some kind. Something and and uh, but they're real big on it. They've done it before and and this you know you know you so we talk about yeah you help your riparian zone. You can also get some aquatic plants in there. Uh, makes a great time to do that. And when the water comes back up, they're right where they ought to be, want to be. Last thing, real quick, we got to talk about some fishing. I know that you don't <laughs> fish much, but you 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 make it so us folks that do can have good places to do it. And we all know that when a lake that's been drawn down comes up and that water flows, mine wasn't drawn down for so long that terrestrial grasses, you know, fescue uh -huh. and uh -huh. grasses like that were growing, uh, replacing the millet and the longleaf pondweed and all this. So now all that stuff's underwater. Uh -huh. And when you get that water come up and your old shoreline aquatic plant zone comes back up and sometimes comes clear up and floods uh -huh. in your riparian zone, now you've created what we call soft margins where you have relatively bare where the water's always been 
Now you have a, a transition of plants where the water suddenly is now. And then mm -hmm. if it really floods and gets up in the repairing zone, you have yet another zone. And these are all good places to fish. Amy, the Oklahoma Pond Lady, tell us why the fishing gets so good when this happens, because it is outstanding. Uh, well, I know we've talked about this before, but it's all about those little micro habitats. You inundate grasses or other types of vegetation that were not previously inundated, and all of a sudden you've got places for little zooplankton to get food and cover, which draws in your larger aquatic inverts like insect larvae and then that draws in your little bait fish to prey on the inverts which draws in your bigger predators so that it it definitely does improve the ability for your smaller organisms to not only find food resources and cover but it also provides then that whole web effect for everybody else up the chain. Now, if it was just bare, dry dirt, obviously it's a little bit different if that becomes inundated. But if you've got some nice little grasses or forbs or things that are now underwater, then it's almost like a, a miniature little tree or a brush pile that you would create for yes. a larger fish. Yes, yes, it, it's fantastic. It's just absolutely fantastic. I um, I always, you know, got to caution that new angler because I've made this mistake in my youth. And, and you go and you're, you're throwing, you know, you always, always say the bank anglers want to throw to the middle and guys in the boats want to throw at the bank. Well, you will be shocked thinking, oh, they're not biting today. But all of a sudden you find yourself fishing within five, 10 feet of the shore and you're diddling around in water you think would normally be too shallow, but that's where they're at sometimes. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden you're just, you're just making casts down the bank instead of straight out toward the middle. You're making what you call Arkansas. You, you throw it parallel to the bank. And you work those soft margins and you drag your little around and you'll be shocked at a lot of the places where you can come up with a fish. Well, Amy, thank you so much for coming in tonight and talking with this old fellow about drawdown. It is fascinating to me. And I was breaking a worried sweat over it all summer, but it's over and the fishing is really good. So thanks for letting us have this conversation, bounce some ideas off one another tonight. Absolutely. And I think that the take home for this just needs to be that drawdown could be good or bad, depending on what your vision is for it. And it's all very highly dependent on the system and where you are in the country as to whether or not it's something you should take on or you should just let Mother Nature do her thing. Well, what'd you think of that, Clay? Pretty cool, huh? Uh, she's awesome, and I'm so glad that she's part of the silliness here on the Fish Nerds podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. I know. And and uh, she asked if she could send in some pet peeves, and I said, heck yes! Yes, and we already had one, we already played one. We did. Yeah, and we'll play some more. Because <laughs> I'm sure Amy has a laundry list. Yes, she, 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 she's threatening with a, with several so we'll yeah, and, by, and by the way if you're uh, if you're a listener and you're thinking about hey i'm gonna send in some pet peeves i got like 30 things i'm gonna rant about you can put them all together as one sure you can you can do a laundry list in that way i don't have to do five days of you david redden and uh the rest of you because <laughs> <So>, <laughs> that's coming you know five in a row from one one listener david so <laughs> hey we're david's so, always helping us out we love david we we're so happy to hear from everybody so yeah for yes, sure indeed all right sure. Um, yeah, so drawdowns. How was your lake faring? 
it's doing great. Like I say, it came back up. The, the fishing's good. The, you know, we, we talked in there about soft margins, and I've just been working those soft margins and crappie are cruising along, bass cruising along. And next time I get down there, I am taking my fly rod. I don't care how foul the weather is. I'm taking it with me just in case they are still surface feeding. So, yeah, well, yeah I'll tell you, it's I'll, good. I'll tell you what I've got in my mind right now. So, so Conway Lake, it's my, 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 one of my local lakes I guide on. They had to rebuild the boat launch this fall. So they just did it this week. They drew the lake down uh, 25 feet, down to a trickle. Now, this is a glacial lake that's dam controlled. So they, right. It was built in the 1800s for textiles, right? So theoretically, the lake is down to its original size from 100-something years ago, which is kind of amazing, which is a much, much smaller lake. And then when they built the dam, the dam it flooded the farmlands. You know, all these, there's all these underwater rock walls and cobble everywhere. So wow. what I, what I want to do, if we get some nice weather right now, it's in the thirties and windy, so I can't do it, but I want to canoe out and pick lures around the island where I do a lot of bass fishing. And I know I've lost a lot of lures. And so lots of people probably have, but what I'm concerned about interesting, not, I'm not concerned, I'm interested in is they're not going to, they're not going to block that dam up again until springtime. So the, for the entire winter, this lake, which is usually a big ice fishing destination lake, and uh, you know it's it, it impacted by ice, what's going to happen to all those fish? Are they just going to condense down to smaller areas? Is it going to be better fishing, easier fishing? What's going to happen in the winter when that lake freezes this year and it's twenty percent less lake? So I'm well, curious. Are about they that. still going to allow fishing on it? Yeah. Yeah. No problem. Well, then, um, I mean, you heard it from the pond lady's mouth. Sometimes when they're concentrated in the winter like that, they actually have easier time getting prey, so they tend to uh, feed more. So We'll have to see. I'll have to go out and test it. The trick is I can't do a fair test, John, because I've never iced fish on that lake. Oh, really? Well, here's the other problem with that lake. There's no access Okay. in the winter. But because of the drawdown, there will be access this year because now you have this mud flats that'll be frozen you can walk all the way out to the lake that because usually there's a river that runs out of the lake to the dam and that river's a trickle now so that the banks of that river now will all be just frozen i can walk right up and go fish it so oh 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 that's right because there's a lot of cabins a lot of uh yeah what they call camps up in uh maine mm -hmm. so yeah so you can kind of uh start at the ramp start at the little spot of public ground and then just walk your way on out where you want to go Exactly. So, or snowmobile, if I can get my machine running. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, we'll look forward. I'll report back to that. Amy Robinson, thank you so much for that report. Welcome all your stuff. Love that. Let's keep moving, John. Let's keep moving. Guess what, bro? What, what? What? Our best buddy, our most prolific correspondent of late, our friend from Rhode Island, he has sent in yet another piece. Guy's out of control. The guy is out of control. Which man. I like. I like people out of control. I love people out of control, and this one is about striped bass, and it's talking about how to catch holdover striped bass. So more, every year, Todd gets more and more of these striped bass that keep hanging around, whereas in years past, um, they you know tend to leave the Rhode Island area. Um, he always fishes for them anyway, whether they're good fishing or, or scarce fishing, he didn't really care. But these past few years, he's just noticing he's having more and more luck with these stripers that are hanging around. So let's listen to Todd Correa, the fish wrap writer 
talk to us about holdover striped bass. What lures you use for them? Where do you find them? And the reason they're there. Take it away, Todd. Hello, Todd. What's going on in Rhode Island, man? Howdy, friend. We are uh, we're doing very well here. We've had something like 15 straight weekends of rain, and we just finally had the first clear Saturday since something like early August. So we're pretty happy over here. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Where are they at? We had the flip-flop of that. We have been X week with no rain and finally had some. But you sent me a message saying, John, I want to come on the show and talk about late-season stripers. I want to talk about holdover stripers and some fall tricks and stuff for catching stripers this time of year and i can never say no to you sir because you know <laughs> when it comes to stripers you have me mesmerized i'm happy to listen to striper talk all day and since we have a lot of listeners up in the northeast that are out there catching fish off the jetties and on the inshore let's hear about these holdover stripers what is a holdover striper sir okay so the the short science briefing is that um, obviously, uh, striped bass are migratory species. They, they generally, in this area, they spend their winters in the Hudson or um, up in the Chesapeake, and they hang out for the winter. And then in the spring, they migrate north. And as waters warm, they are migrating farther and farther north. That's a, kind of a different conversation. So they come up here, they spawn, they do their thing, they feed, they hang out, um, they get chased by all of us. And then right about, you know, late September, early October, their noses sense the, the change in the waters and the foods, and they bulk up. They try to get as much protein as they can. They hit those river herring and the, the shad and the pogies, and they go back south, and they go up the Hudson or back to the Chesapeake. Um, and it, it, it's not an anomaly, but historically, some fish will go into our salt ponds and up in our salty rivers, and they will stay. That's, that's not unusual. It's, it's pretty normal, actually. Um, what's happened the last few years is that because I fortunate enough to chase stripers 12 months a year, there are more fish staying, which has been a you know a real opportunity for guys that have the, have the, uh, the gumption to go out in January or February, but we're seeing a lot more fish stay for the year on season. And, you know, there's a whole nother conversation for another time about the, the dynamics of that. If it's good for their population, if it shows a, a change in their dynamic if it's bad for their breeding because it throws off their their migration and then their uh, you know their their natural um, notice to breed again in the spring, we don't really know. There's not a lot of research there, but um, I can tell you that the right now salt ponds in Narragansett Bay, which is our massive giant estuary, waters are about 61, 62 degrees, and the fish are feeding. And so, what are they feeding on? You're out there paddling around in your kayak in your shirt sleeves finally the other day, uh, sending me a picture of that delight, and I appreciate that. So you're out there in your shirt sleeves. What are they feeding on? What are you chasing them with, man? With the water in the 60s, there's a few silver sides left. Uh, the, you know, small little bait fish are typical. You know, if a two-year-old drew a picture of a fish, that kind of with a silver side or you know, little anchovies <laughs> look like. There's, there's plenty of those, but... We have some also migrating fish, which is again another show. There's a we have a local forage fish, you know, Menhaden or pogies they call them. The Menhaden typically vacate late in the year, like now, and they seem to be staying longer and longer. So the stripers are on shad if they can find them. The rivers will have American shad, and um, they also are on to those pogies. And then those river herring, the bluebacks and the alewives. 
they should be gone, but they're slowly making their way out of the ponds where they've been all summer, and they're also headed offshore. So, you know, Saturday I saw Manhattan, I saw Silversides, and I saw Herring. So those are pure protein, fatty fish that the stripers just love. And, you know, fish are a lot smarter than humans. I'm, I'm happy to say that in most situations, I think fish are smarter than us. <laughs> well, they certainly know their business. I uh, want to know your business. How, how, how could you tell? Could you actively see them or by the way they school or surface? Or what, what are you telling me you could tell the difference between these bait fish? Or is it well, it was getting puked up? <laughs> well, two answers to that. If you have a machine on your boat, if you have a, you know, any kind of a fish finder, you can see the smaller fish like the suicides will ball up real tight balls because the fish are picking them off, just like you see on the, you know, David Attenborough <laughs> PBS shows, you know, the fish are picking them off. The bigger fish like the Manhattan and the herring tend to rise to the surface. And they'll, they'll trick you because you'll see them from 100 yards away and think you see bass and you'll paddle your butt off to get over there and <laughs> you can't catch anything because they're just little eight and ten inch forage fishes. But, you know, you have more luck snagging when they catch you one. But in most situations, there will be bass under them. Um, bass are, anybody that chases stripers knows they are notoriously lazy. They are, um, they are very opportunistic feeders. So some of the smaller bass will go in there and whack a couple of those fish and tear them up. And then the big bass will sit in the bottom with their mouth open and take the free meal. Well, so I hate to cut you off, but that just gets me all shook up because that's white bass and wipers. That's exactly what they do. And, and uh, yeah, you let the little, little ones under a pound, they'll be thrashing and carrying on and, and awful fun to catch. But you really want a big one. You got to kind of throw out, let your spoon settle, settle on down below. And that's where the bigger fish are catching the scraps. And then you're going to weigh on down and you'll have catfish swimming around along the bottom, picking up things that, that make it through through everybody and all the way down. So you can get some uh, nice channel cats and flatheads or blues on the spoon doing that so that is um i don't know we've had our true bass episode and uh, one of these days you're coming my way and i'm going to show you about wiper fishing in the creeks and i'm going to come your way you're going to take me out on these salt ponds gosh darn it because this sounds too fun i love targeting surface feeding or fish that are attacking schools of surface feeding fish it's great so if, if you know the listeners that are, are trying to get on some of this it's it this lesson you know logically applies year round but it's really important this time of year especially with the shorter days, colder waters, colder air temperatures, you don't have as long on the water. It's, it's top, middle, bottom. You know, you got to bring some plugs that'll uh, make a lot of noise on the surface if they're up that high or, you know, if you're in some shallow water, you got to have something for the middle, like a spoon or um, like an SP minnow, something that'll give a little wiggle waggle going through the middle of the water column. And you got to have something that'll go deep because if you do get something, you know, if you're in a river, you've got 20 feet of water, you've got to have something heavy or, to get to the bottom of those fish, to get those big lazy ones, because the best money is on the big fish sitting in the bottom with their mouth open. <laughs> so I want to get after one of those. What, what am I looking at? I got a current, uh, the current provided by tide or the, the, the current of the river coming into the ocean, or is it both? Or, or what am I looking at? And what am I looking at weight-wise? I, I mean, I'm already thinking, hey, a big bucktail jig or a big twister or something like that. But what am I, a one-ounce head, half-ounce head? What am I doing? Most of the time, as the water gets colder, I'm on quarter to um, three-eighths ounce jig heads. Plastics, anything with a wiggle, pearl, white colors are very important. I fish a big, if, if I think there might be something in a, in a corner, I have this uh, the Shimano Splash Walk, which is probably one of my favorite lures ever invented. And uh, it comes you, in four wait, or five I, I'm, I'm interrupting you again because you are the poster boy. 
for the Shimano Splash Walk. I don't know how many times I've seen you hold up a honking striper with one of those hanging out of its mouth, but if they are not uh, sending you some free ones and, and, and putting you on the advertising, they are screwing up. I'm telling you, I, I mean, I'm not in the peril. I'm just telling you, you know, <laughs> mono and mono here. I'm telling you that Good man. If, if you suspect, you know, a lot of the old timers always kept a, uh, a Twitch bait or a search bait, something to bang around. It may not catch something, but it would at least let them know they're a fish in the area. You put on that splash walk, and I'm a big fan of that bone color. And I mean, that that's it. I mean, that's the, it could be the shortest marketing approach ever. It works. Like, why haven't you figured this out yet? <laughs> why don't you have one? But anyway, <laughs> you got to have something for the surface. Could be a small little pencil pop or something that makes um, uh, makes a splash. You got to have something for the middle, something for the bottom. And I will tell you this time of year, you do not need expensive lures. Uh, you can go to a big box store, one of the big fishing retailers. And a lot of times when you walk through the door, once you get past the giant moose and the transom of a boat or whatever, they'll have these big wooden boxes full of cheap lures, three bucks, four bucks, mostly made, meant for catching largemouth bass. Take a handful of those this time of year, especially later when the fish are really getting fussy because they're cold and they're hungry, but they won't waste a lot of calories to go chase something. You get one of those little small bass plugs that rattle. The little small trebles, you can put singles on there if you want. And man, if they if they move side to side and they have little BBs in them, you're going to catch stripers. You're going to catch holdover stripers on those little cheap $3, $4 lures. Wow, so that's kind of a mid-range, like a like a crankbait, like a square bill crankbait, or a... exactly a, a crankbait, a little with the square bill, you know, a little bit of a diver. Sometimes, you know, as the water gets real cold, they'll go down, fish be down the very bottom. So if you're not fishing a spoon or something, get one that dives real deep. Um, you know, a DOA, uh, anything that can dive real deep will get you where you want to be, and that rattling and that will draw them out. You know, you, that's your best chance to get one off the bottom. Wow, that's great. That's great. And speaking of spoons, since you're going to have some spoons in your box, they might as well be Al's Goldfish Spoons because those have been catching stripers for years and years and years and years and years. And I know you're a fan of the Al's Goldfish. I am. And, you know, I'll throw in the shameless self-promotion plug. We do have a Fish Wrap Writer Edition Al's Goldfish Saltwater Series plug um, spoon, and it is specifically designed. The, the genius of Al's was the simplicity. Again, if you you know if you're three years old, get your grandkid to draw a picture of a fish. Well, there that's an <laughs> yes. fish. There you go. You know the secrets out on the, on the great design. There you go. Someone's kid drew it on a napkin at a you know at a Ponderosa restaurant. But <laughs> it looks like a fish for a reason, and it's curved just enough to wiggle waggle back and forth. And the one that we did for a fish wrap has a couple little spots. Looks like a Manhattan. And I'm telling you, man, it works because it's pure genius. Because it's simple. I've seen some surf plugs, $40, $50, $60 now, and they're gorgeous. Holographic eyes and all this crazy paint. They're beautiful. The works of art. I think when you start fishing for holdovers and the water gets cold and those fish are smart and wary, what they see is a fish. They see a fish shape go by that's wiggling, that looks like it's injured, and I believe that their little brains say, yep, I can hit that, I can get that, and off they go. It's not so much all the flash and the bedazzle and the bling. It's that simple fish shape with a little bit of wiggle. Well, that is the wisdom I always look for. I always appreciate because all the baits you're talking about, you know, an Alan's goldfish has a nice, easy going wobble. We're going to drop down with a bucktail jig or, or a plastic of some sort. Once again, we got a nice meal that's moving at a pace that says, hey, I don't have to exert all this energy. I'm not going to go crazy, but. Gosh, if they're going to make it that easy for me, 
how can I resist? And then, of course, a sassy little square bill or a little uh, a deep diver wiggling along with the rattles. And that ornery little thing's going to run right through the middle of us. He's he's had it. When a fish is laying like that, it's it's a real trick to get it to move. I mean, you run something right off their nose, they'll generally hit it. But I think your bigger success comes when you can get a fish to move a few feet either from side to side or up and down. You're absolutely right. Uh, and I have been in plenty of situations where I've sat in my kayak in January and I can see the fish under me and I can see my lure go by it and I can see the fish giving me the finger. It's not, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You Take put, that, you, Pixar. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like um, Northland makes some good, some good midwater plugs uh you know plastics you get one of those with just enough rattle and it might be just enough to make them come take a sniff and that's you know right now there's a lot of fish around the fishing's good as it gets later obviously it's going to get tougher it's like later in the deer season you know they they're starting to wise up so that little bit of rattle that little bit of wiggle makes all the difference well that's fantastic well thank you for talking to us about the holdover stripers and that just because the main migration has gone on, there's still uh, some stripers around. It used to be they were hanging out somewhere else further south. Now they're hanging out with you guys. Same game, different different place. So it gets you something to fish at. And wow, what a thing to fish at. Because I, like I say, I've seen some of these late season, wintertime stripers. In fact, when I first started following you, that's what I was seeing. I was seeing you catching these holdovers in these ponds. So I sure appreciate you coming in, telling our listeners what they can go out and do with the, the type of holdover environments they have up and down the coast. And uh, hopefully they will be able to get out and use some of these baits we've talked about to catch some stripers. Anyway. Oh, hey, hey, John, can I just add one thing? It, of course. For the, as the weather gets on and, the, and the, the days get shorter, it's just real important for people to remember to try to limit the amount of time those fish are out of the water. Like, I mean, obviously they have gills. That's where they're taking their oxygen in. And the longer you pose for that ussy with that fish out of the water, especially when those gills can freeze. If, you know, if you if you manage to get a bass through the ice in January or February or in some open water, you got to get them either leave them in the water, which is the most preferable method, um, or you got to get them back in the water quick, 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 and give them a minute, hold on to their tails, give them a minute to get their act together, and then let them go. Because otherwise those gills get a little bit of ice on them and they're just going to swim 30 feet and roll over and die. And that we don't want that. No, we do not want that, and that is important because we talk a lot about heat stress on fish, but cold stress, we've had Rhett Talbot on the show, we've had several other people on the show talking about you know the trout situation when it's cold, people talking about ice situation, the ice fishing situation. The more you know, the more you know, so be very careful on those super cold days with those stripers. If you live without a picture, do it, but if you got to have one, get that camera ready, leave that striper in the water, and then the next thing you know, Pull it up, pow, back in the water and go. All right. Well, thank you for that tip because it is vitally important to preserve our fisheries. We certainly do not want to have a catch and release ethic that is pointless. So please take care of our fish. Do your best to plan out your photo, get it done quick, and be as humane as possible toward that fish. So you're going to go out and get yourself a kayak? You need a kayak, man. I have a kayak. You have a kayak. I, I bought it 30 years ago. It's a uh, Walden Experience kayak. It's back in the day when, when recreational kayaks first started becoming popular. And it's before sit-on-top fishing kayaks were a thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah but I, couldn't, I could never take that out to where Todd's fishing. <laughs> right. No, I would no. most certainly die. Yeah, because you're talking one of them down in, get down in it type. Oh, thing. yeah. It's awful. And I'm too big for it. Uh, well, and, yeah, probably other. 
<laughs> round belly and all but yeah i like yeah. my big wide flat kayak that you know yeah it's almost a sup board exactly <laughs> i do have a sup board i could take out there you go <laughs> well get out there to that 18 miles of shoreline and find yourself a, a place and uh, see if you've got any yeah people people definitely do and you can catch them in the rivers all winter oh okay New Hampshire. there's actually in manchester this is three dams up from the ocean there are there's a red there are resident populations of striped bass in the merrimack river really they are there year-round Wow! Never, they never leave because because any anadromous fish, not any. That's not fair to say. Jock Doc will beat me up for this. A lot of anadromous fish can easily adapt to fresh water. So okay. what happens is sometimes the fish get there and they like it. There's plenty of food. <laughs> it's warm. There's plenty of oxygen, and they just stay. And sometimes they follow their instincts and leave. And that's why we have things like landlocked salmon. That's why we have smelts. Because those are anadromous. That's why we have all kinds of fish that are landlocked. So, yeah. Even white perch are ocean running fish. Wow. Yeah, I just, I, sorry to interrupt. I have to cut you off there. But I just, you've got me, as always, I don't know what it is about where you live and Todd lives up there in the Northeast. I mean, I, I want to go. I have dreams of going all over this great country and fishing mm -hmm, everywhere. Me too. But, uh, I, there's something about the Merrimack River. We just talked about it the uh, other show. How we, maybe we're going to meet there in one of these days. And now I want to get up there more than ever because that sounds like a lot of fun to me. Well, that's where I learned about fish. So that, I'm biased towards the Merrimack River. It has everything in it in New Hampshire. And it's it's, it's such a historic river. Yes. It was the centerpiece of of, uh, of the textile industry in New England for years. Uh, so that, that and the Connecticut River, those two rivers are like so important. And fishing is so good in them. Well, I've just gotten into river fishing here in the past, oh, five, six, seven years, and I love it. So that is a date. But you know what? We got one more piece that yeah. I went ahead. I, I had to have somebody help me out. I couldn't get Tim to help me out uh, with this next piece. But we're going to do a piece called KLUR Radio uh, that we used to do on Lure Love. So everybody sit tight, and you'll listen to Todd and me talk about Bob Pond and his Adam Lure Company. All right. Hey, you hear some sort of crackling noise? I hear crackling noise. I haven't, I haven't even taken a breath. It's not me. Well, I'm thinking that's time for us to clean in this old radio over here for KLUR. Good evening, America. Welcome to KLUR. KLUR, Lure History Radio. The year is 1946. And the big band on the stand is Bob Pond with his Cape Cod Canal Orchestra and their new hit song, I Love You with Every Atom of My Heart. Alrighty, this is KLUR, and we are here to talk about Adam Lures. And with me, I've got Todd Correer. I had to kind of twist his arm and drag him on in here, but I couldn't get Tim Beat. You know Tim Beat, don't you? Uh, I'm the president of the Tim Beat Fan Society. <laughs> I am. I'm a, as a national organization, I am the CEO and executive director. Well, I tell you, I wondered about that bust of Tim Beat on your desk, and I wondered what that was all about. But now I understand <laughs> completely. But he said, "You know, I don't have time to do this with you, man. You get pick on Todd because Todd knows about this East Coast stuff, and we are going to talk about Adam Lewis, which are some of the most famous striped bass lures in history." Back in 1946, angler Bob Pond was wondering 
how do we catch these stripers when they're on the surface? Because he was raised to think that they would only take bait off the bottom and that when they were on the surface, they could not be caught. But one day at the Cape Cod Canal, Bob says, I was sitting under the Sagamo Bridge and I saw a striped bass rolling on the surface. And he went down and he saw an angler that had caught a good one. And this cracks me up, Todd, because the guy saw him coming and quickly threw a Turkish towel over the fish to hide what he had caught him on. And as Bob approached, the guy just kind of put his hands on his hip and shook his head no, like, you're crazy. I'm not telling you a thing. You got the looks of a journalist on you, man. <laughs> I'm not yeah, about but does, to. But, but doesn't, you, that story, doesn't that story beg the question of why the man was fishing the Cape Cod Canal carrying a Turkish towel? Exactly. I don't know what a Turkish towel is. It sounds fancy and exotic. <laughs> it also sounds like something I would not have in my tackle box. Um, yes, I, I, yeah, I, I just, it sounds like something from a completely different arena. Um, but um, what happened was that he got intrigued by what he saw there. And Bob was making repeated trips back. And one day he waited out and he felt something bumping into his legs. He looked down and there was a creek chub, mineral of some sort. And he figured it must have come from this fella that he had seen fishing because nobody fished with plugs in those days. A very few fishers were using plugs for striped bass. And he said it was all scarred up and the paint was a mess and some of the hooks were broke. But he went on down to the breakwater and started throwing it and caught one fish after another. And that gave him the idea to design a surface plug of his own. So... He started in on this problem in 1944. By 1946, he'd come up with the Atom Striper Swiper. Have you ever fished with one of those, Todd? The only Striper Swipers I have are pretty old, and I I don't think I've ever tied one of them on. I'd hate to lose one. Oh, so you those were in your... Uh, yeah, I've got my, my maybes up here hanging, uh, only under the most dire of circumstances. But I guess a, a good wooden one can bring you some money because they uh, only made the wooden ones for a few years, and then they switched over because plastics were becoming a big deal in the post-war economy, in the post-war manufacturing environment. And the way he started his company was he spent the winter lathing out, carving out, whatever, about 400 striper swipers in, in, in wood, and he sold them all just like instantly. But the ones his friends didn't want or didn't take the tackle shop snapped up immediately. He always dreamed of having some sort of job in the fishing business. And so to have this lure do so well was like a dream come true for him. And he uh, formed Adam Lures in 1948. And that's when they switched from making them out of wood to making them out of plastic. And they were much more uniform. He could make them faster. He could sell them cheaper. So he located Adam Lures in South Attleboro. He went on and on and on. And finally, in 1998, uh, he sold the company. And since then, it's, it's been sold a couple more times. You can still get them. I put a link in the show notes about uh, where you can get some Adam Lewis. You can get the popper, the Adam popper, or you can get uh, Striper Swiper. They're still making it. Classic bait. I was. It's just kind of like every fish seems to have some classic old bait that uh, people are still using for it, whether it's musky or white bass or whatever. And I was just super, super, super jazzed to find out about the striper swiper. So what's the, what's the deal? Is it, is it kind of a walk bait or, or what's the magic behind the striper swiper? Well, there's a couple of things. It, it, it has a sparkle. It's, the classic is blue and white. You know, I have 
probably six or eight or ten of them out in the garage, the, the plastic versions that I fish. There's something about the cup in the front. And anybody who fishes for, for bass, you know, freshwater, largemouth bass knows that if you get just the right topwater bass and you give it just the right jerk on the right time, it makes that certain special sound that drives fish crazy, right? So that striper swiper, when fish properly, you put a decent metal leader on it because the, you know, the, well, the striped bass don't have teeth, but the bluefish love that thing and they have teeth. So <laughs> you put a bit of a wire leader on it. And when you get that plop just right, I mean, nothing beats it. The sparkle helps, the blue and white helps. And it's also one of those special lures that you can have it have been torn apart for three years. There's nothing left but rags to this thing, and they still catch. Torn to pieces, all chewed up, they still catch. Wow, that, that's wonderful. I'm just always fascinated with old lures, and especially local, regional-like lures that I've never heard of because, of course, I don't get to do the same kind of fishing that other people do. In 1965, Bob founded Stripers Unlimited. This is such an interesting thing to me because it's a, a clearinghouse for biological information and it's an active organization for conservation measures to protect the fish. And uh, he has been pretty relentless with this. The, the, the lures were just to start, but what his passion is now is protecting, preserving, and conserving the striped bass all up and down the Atlantic coast. John, I think there's something really remarkable and very praiseworthy of someone who invents something so effective that you, uh, a couple of years later, you look back and go, oh man, people are crushing the striper population by lure, we have to do something about it. That's a really, you know, that's an admirable trait to look back and say, yeah, you know, I'm a king for what I invented and the uh, the success I've had, but we need to make sure the population stays strong. That's brilliant. He deserves a lot of accolades for that. That's really, you know, it's really amazing. And and that, that group has done well. When he was back in Attleboro, he was selling the kind of the rejects and the and the pieces there at his old shop in Attleboro, and people could go in and get a handful and get some hooks and put them together themselves. He was way ahead of his time. Well, I am I am fascinated. I am so glad I came uh, that Tim sent this article in. I enjoyed talking to you about it. Uh, we're going to have to get ready and sign off. I'm looking at that old clock up there, and we are about out of time. But I'm telling you, uh, it's amazing when people like Bob Pond come along because that's exactly what I think what was going on. You know, he. He helped the anglers catch a lot of strivers, but sometimes uh, we feel like, hey, my more important calling now is to preserve this fishery so people can enjoy this for generations and generations and generations to come. We will have the link to this article in the show notes. Please read it. It's a lot of fun. Uh, super interesting story. Not a long read at all. But Bob Pond, maker of Adam Lures that are still around like so many of the great old companies. They're still around. You can still get one. And apparently our East Coast inshore fishing specialist mr todd correa the fish wrap writer we want to thank you todd for coming in tonight and helping us with klur you highly recommend adam lures uh, so much that you're going to keep your babies nice and safe we'll have to buy you a few new ones that you can go out and lose we'll buy a couple for christmas how's that for you? amen it's uh it's my pleasure to be with you my absolute pleasure all righty we'll be talking to you next time klur lure history Day. John, we got to wrap this show up, buddy. It's getting getting to be sun, sunrise here in New Hampshire. Yeah, that sun might be coming up here before too long. We got I got to tell you, John, I got to tell you, I kind of like recording early in the morning. Me too. I, I kind of prefer it. <laughs> so. It's my time of day. I get up super early because that's when I can get stuff done without being interrupted. So yeah. i tell you what, I don't know who else is up with us. Hopefully you're getting up to go fishing because what you've screwed up and listened to us instead when you should have gone fishing. 
Uh, so we got some thank yous to to put out there. So many thank yous. We got to thank uh, Wally Pleasant, Diana's Bath Salts, uh, Mysterious Baitcaster Cylinder, Amy, Todd, Tim Beat, our families. Of course, you, the listener, thank you so much for taking the time. The best way to help us out with guests to grow. We have a goal here, John. We have a yes. goal to get 5,000. It's not a huge goal to get 5,000 people per episode to listen. Right now, we get 1,000 people, solid 1,000 every week. Yeah, we love you. Hey, 1,000 people, thank you, because it is a rock-solid uh, yeah. stat for us. But to really make the show sustainable, that means it makes enough money where it pays all its own bills and maybe puts a couple dollars in me and John's pockets. Right now, we don't make a dollar on this show. The show has a little bit of advertising that pays, that kind of it's almost break-even money. So to get sustainable, we need to get to 5,000. That's the magic number that advertisers want to see to give us money right now they give us free stuff but i kind of want money <laughs> so <laughs> so that's what we're aiming for so the best way to help is please tell your friends about the fish nerds invite them to come be part of our silliness all right john let's close this show and keep bringing your ears right on in here every week because um without you we ain't got nothing to do <laughs> all right let's close out this show Follow the code of the fish nerds. Spawn early and often. Never trust a free lunch with strings attached. And swim against the current every chance you get. You did it, John. You made a podcast. Well, heck yeah. You're fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet. Or deep in the ocean, casting nets. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. It's a podcast. Just for the hell of it. Fried in a basket or broiled in a pan. Eat it raw like you're in Siam. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. It's a podcast. All right, John. My coffee's cold. My eggs are waiting for me. Oh, well, get out of here. here. Don't eat them cold, man. I'll talk to you soon. I'll see you next time I see you. All righty. Later on.